Saturday morning has rolled around again, folks, and welcome to another edition of Inside the Outdoors. I hope your uh, week went well and your weekend is going well. I guess our weather is about to change again on us, but, uh, you know, this is a time of year when, who knows, you can get in the along the Wasatch Front, you can get 50-plus degrees, or you can get 15 degrees. I guess it doesn't matter uh, what time of... Uh, of the month it is it's just a matter of when those storms line up but boy i'll tell you what if we got enough water we are 150 160 and maybe even more ahead of normal i I never figured out though how that works because normal what is normal i mean is normal a 40-year average a 20-year average a 15-year average a 50-year average what is normal because every year is different so it means that the the marker slides right normal normal for the last five years would be normal would be different than the normal for the last 25 years so what's normal so when they're talking about 140 150 percent of normal i have to ask one of the weather guys one of these days what how do you come up with normal what are the parameters Let's put it this way. It looks like we'll have plenty of water to boat on this coming summer, and that's good news. And obviously, we've got plenty of snow to snowmobile on, to ski on, to snowshoe on, do whatever you want to right now. And for the most part, the ice is holding up. Now, there are places where, surprise, surprise, it's gone down a little bit, but uh, for the most part, at least, there is sufficient uh, safe safe ice uh, on our reservoirs, and so you got to be happy about that. So anyway, uh, that that will I guess uh, hold us over for a while. And uh, fishing kind of spotty. The fishing has been some places it's been red hot, some places it's been absolutely spectacular, and in other places it's been well a little bit a uh, little bit worrisome in terms of how the fish have not been biting. The question. Question is: Is that an indication that the fishery itself is not that great, or is it a fact, just a fact of uh, the fish are not that active? And I guess we'll have to wait and see and hear from the division on the, on things of that nature. But it sounds like, for the most part, the people are getting out, enjoying the uh, the ice fishing, and then those who are fishing moving water, Middle Provo apparently is fishing really good. Again, depending on when you get out. And what kind of a day it is, and real honestly, how good a fisherman you are. But um, but that is one of those fisheries that is doing quite well, I think, on the whole. You, all you got to do is look online, and you'll see people who said, boy, I had a great day on the middle of Provo today. That is a stretch of river that at least until lately, was not getting beaten up as badly as the lower Provo, which, um, as I said, every fish there probably knows the make and the manufacturer of every fly that goes by. They've seen them so frequently. But in the middle, on the middle Provo, some really nice fish coming out of there and, uh, and a great opportunity to, if you want a fish move, moving water close to the Wasatch Front, that's one of them. Another great uh, fishery would be, obviously, the Weber. That's another one of those good fisheries that, this time of year especially can be productive and especially for the whitefish and every week I keep threatening that we're going to talk about whitefishing and maybe it's going to be next week because for those of you who are looking for good sized fish 
that don't get the pressure maybe that uh, some of the others do. The white fishery, especially during the winter months, is probably one of those that you need to look at. A couple of things. One in particular this weekend is going on right now, held yesterday and today at Gunnison Bend Reservoir, which is just west of Delta. They have the uh, the snow goose viewing event. Now, this is kind of a huge event every year. Uh, it, it's, I mean, you got to see this thing to believe it because thousands of snow geese come into the state of Utah this time of year. Not to be confused, obviously, with the uh, greater and lesser Canada geese that we have uh, that, that are in the state year-round. Many of them live here. And then, of course, we do get the migratory flocks as well. But the snow goose is a uh, an annual migratory event. As many as 20,000 geese mostly snow geese, have apparently been at uh, at the reservoir during the past festivals. This is an annual event, and snow geese are completely white, except for the, the black tips on their wings. They will be completely white, so much, much different than Canada geese as far as the, uh, as far as the, the look is concerned. DWR biologists have uh, spotting scopes set up there today. Now, this morning, you probably, unless you live in close to the area of Gunnison Bend, just west of Delta, you're probably not going to make the morning flight because they pick up about an hour from now and head back to the fields off the reservoir and takes them about an hour and a half to complete that pickup between 9 and 10.30 in the morning, typically, depending on weather, but typically they will, uh, they will pick up off the water and head back to the fields to feed. And then they'll spend several hours uh, in the uh, in the fields, and then uh, and then they'll come back again, and they'll they'll move around a little bit, but the typical move time is between nine and ten thirty a.m. when they take off, uh, and then they go back to the reservoir again. So you'll be able to see them moving back and forth now. If you want to watch them tonight, between 4 and 6 p.m., they will go back from the reservoir and take off again and go back into the fields. So they'll they'll move from from the reservoir to the fields, the fields to the reservoir, and back to the fields again throughout the day. But the biologists are going to watch, and they'll be able to tell you which fields the geese are going to fly to. So if if you leave after... They've left for the fields in the afternoon. If you get there, they can tell you, and you'll have a chance to uh, to check them out. Now, they want you to bring your own binoculars or spotting scope because um, because you can scare them away. I mean, the birds will come in, but they they are spooky and they can be scared away. Now, the division will have some spotting scopes and some and some binoculars there. But if you want to take the kids and have them get a chance to see what. They'll only see it this time of year, really, the snow geese, because they're not here year-round. It is really a, a kind of a cool thing for them to see. Uh, they tell you, dress in layers. You need to stay warm. It is one of those things that, um, uh, again, you'll. It, it's, worth, it's worth the trip. If you're not too far away and you haven't seen this before, it is definitely worth looking at because it's, uh, it's kind of a fun phenomena, and really it's the only time of year that uh, you get a chance to see them as well. Well, now here's the other thing, and we'll give you this uh, notice in advance, because coming up in just a couple of weeks, 
you'll have a chance to, on the 14th of March, the Wild Swan Day is the Division of Wildlife Resources Wild Swan Day. And they're going to have swan viewing events at two waterfowl management areas in northern Utah. Uh, the Salt Creek WMA, which is southwest of Tremonton, and then the one closer to the Wasatch Front at Farmington Bay. Uh, both those are easily accessible. The Salt Creek viewing event goes from 9 until 1 o'clock on the 14th at a place called Compton's Knoll, which is a small, a small hill on the northeast side of that WMA. And, um, uh, and while you should be able to see swans at both of these WMAs, the Salt Lake viewing uh, can often get you a little bit closer to them from Salt Creek. At Farmington Bay, uh, they're sometimes uh, kind of a ways away from the viewing site, but, uh, but the one at Salt Creek is a little bit closer. Again, probably want to take your own spotting scope and your own binoculars. You'll, I mean, there are thousands of swans typically at these events. And again, this is coming up on the 14th of March. So we're giving you a heads up on it a couple of weeks from now. Um, tundra and maybe even a few trumpeter swans. Now, we, most of our swans in this state are tundra swans. Uh, but occasionally we get a trumpeter or two as well. Uh, if you've never seen this, believe me, it, you're not going to have a hard time uh, finding them. They are huge birds. The wingspan, you know, well over six, seven feet for most of these swans. And they're pure white in color. And so, uh, again, this is uh, just another watchable wildlife event if you want to take the kids out or you just want to go out yourself and enjoy it, it's definitely worth the uh, the viewing. But that's on the 14th. The uh, snow geese is today down near Delta. So again, just a couple of places that I uh, thought we'd let you know about. Now, uh, uh, we've got a show lined up today that uh, we're going to talk a couple of things. Obviously, fishing. Uh, we'll have George and Gary will join us for their normal fishing uh, segments on the program. But we'll also talk about bear denning. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, the bear situation in Utah and whether or not the bear population was actually increasing or whether it was simply a matter of more of them are just being seen because of the uh, the weather conditions and bears were forced more into the campgrounds, maybe coming down a little bit, things of that nature. Well, we're going to find out this is one of the times a year when the Division of Wildlife Resources is able to, uh, to figure out what's going on going on by actually going into the bear dens while the dens are hibernating, while the bears are hibernating in their dens, and uh, those cubs are in there as well. So a little later in the program, we'll be talking about that and find out just what's going on. But that's the way we do find out about how the population of the bear uh, in the state of Utah are doing, and of course, a lot of the, the seasons and, uh, and the amount of tags and everything predicated on what's found out through the, uh, the the denning surveys right now. So uh, what these guys do, the Division of Wildlife, you better be in shape if you're doing bear denning because you've got to go find the dens, first of all, and then you've got to be able to get inside. And, of course, uh, the prayer is that Mama is still hibernating, and in this time of year you're pretty safe in there. But we're going to be talking more about that and some of the hassles that are involved in it. Uh, that's all straight ahead. So, listen, we got a great hour planned for you, so stick ahead because Inside the Outdoors will continue in just a moment.
everybody inside the outdoors on this Saturday morning. Well, I hope uh, you and yours are having a good one. I'll tell you, it's uh, it, it is nice. If we finally get in that sunshine, even though the temperatures maybe aren't that warm, we're getting that sun poking through every once in a while now. And and boy, the days when we do have that sunshine, even if it doesn't get up much above the 38, 39, 40 degree temperature, it's just nice to have that. And remember, it's a shade temperature, folks. So that 38, 39, you know, you'll stand outside and say, man, it doesn't feel like cold. it isn't. If you're standing out in the sun. You can figure out maybe another 10 degrees on top of that. So, you know, again, when you start thinking temperatures and trying to make a a mental adjustment for clothing and things like that, remember, those high temperatures that uh, the weatherman gives you and the lows are shade temperatures. They are not sun temperatures. So uh, you can figure on an extra 10 degrees. You know, summer, you can figure on maybe an extra 20 degrees when that summer sun is is, uh, the angle of the earth. But right now, probably an extra 10 degrees. It's not so bad. And uh, that means a lot of folks are thinking about spring. Yeah, I know. Listen, we had the boat show. We had the RV show. Uh, those are two signs that spring isn't too far away. And one of the guys who is thinking about spring, at least, in regard to his fishing, is George Summer, who joins us now. This time of year, George, I know where your thoughts are going. I know that even despite the fact that we've got hard water, that you are thinking ahead maybe another four, five, six weeks. I am. You know, I'm just, uh, it's a lot easier to get prepared now um, so that when we get one of those shots at, at open water and good weather, boom, I can just uh, put the boat up and go. Um, so I'm doing a lot of that, you know, getting things ready now. Yeah, that's a good idea because you're absolutely right. I mean, I think about now there are some places where we've got soft water. Lake Powell's a classic example. But when I think about hooking the boat up, and it's, listen, it's in Huey's garage right now at about 41 degrees. So it's nice. It's thawed. It's not, you know, it doesn't have snow on it. But when you start thinking about hooking it up now, it just seems like it's one heck of a lot of trouble. So if you've gotten all the stuff done, and then it literally is just a matter of dropping it on a, on a trailer ball, it makes it a whole bunch easier when that time does come exactly you know and so i've been you know prepping my uh, put some fuel conditioner in um going to change the spark plugs i haven't done that yet and i focused on changing the line on all of my fishing reels so that i've got a fresh batch um so when i go out and go fishing i don't have any issues yeah, that's that's a great idea because, you know, while you're watching TV and maybe you got the fire on on the weekend and you're not out, maybe the weather is such that you don't want to do it, re-spooling those lines, those those reels, is probably a good thing to be doing right now. It is, you know, and a lot of people will, they'll, they'll think they have to re-spool the whole um, nope. reel, and typically the only time I do that is when I first buy the reel. Then I put all fresh line on there, but usually I'm going to take about half of it off tie a new section to it, um, and spool it up with new line. That way I'm doing it more often, um, so I have fresh line on there so that I don't lose that big fish when I hook that big fish. Yeah, but you know what that means. That means you better learn to tie a real, and I know you know how to do this, to tie a real good blood knot, because because either either that or make sure that you take it down far enough that no matter what kind of fish you've got on there, you don't get back into that older line, and that knot is the uh, is the weak link. Exactly. So it's always a good idea to learn your knots um, and to tie that good knot between the two of them. Because if you get into some big fish and it gets you down to that knot, <laughs> the last thing you want to do is have a break there because you lost the big fish of a lifetime and all that brand new line you just put on. So well, tie a good knot. 
to make it work. And that's and that's one of the other things. Uh, you know, this time of year, it's great to just practice those knots, learn how to tie. As I said, the blood knot is is the one that to me, you know, you better learn how to do that if you're if you're not going to place new line. And I'm with you. These reels will hold you know three four hundred yards or more in line. It gets pretty expensive if you've got to do that and and spool the entire spool of new line. But if you can you know if you can go down 150 200 yards. Uh, if you can't turn a fish in that, you probably better let him go. <laughs> yeah, because it is the fish of a life. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. You know, another thing people don't know is a lot of people are using braided line or super lines nowadays. And, and if you're while you're sitting, you know, in front of the TV with the fire going, you can take that line off, spool it on another spool, turn it around. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That way you're using the other end of it. Yeah, that's a that is a great tip and save some money as well. It really truly is. I, I know the guys at Sportsman's won't want to hear that because that means guys won't come in as often for line, but you're absolutely right. Turning it around and using that new line on the end that hasn't has seen the sunshine and, and had any of that uh, that UV issue uh, would be good. So let's talk about places that you've heard. I know you, you told me before we went on the air you hadn't had a chance to get out this week really, but, uh, but I know you've got reports coming in. In fact, you got one just earlier in the week about Pineview. I did, yeah. You know, Pineview, uh, um, once you found the fish, um, it was a nonstop action on perch. Um, I haven't heard, I, I don't know if the people are catching crappie and they're being quiet about it, but the perch fishing was, was off the chart. Um, so that's a great place to go that's not that far away. Yeah. And the other thing is, I know the bluegill fishing is good, uh, along with the crappie, if you can get down towards the dam. that That's an area of the lake, again, that's a little bit hard to get down to because of the steepness of the bank. But if you fish towards the dam, cross the dam, if you're coming up the canyon, get across the dam and then fish against that shoreline. I guess it's that north shoreline. Um, they're in usually 30, 35 feet of water. I know certainly in the fall, that's a good area. And they will congregate there, especially in the winter as well and they do and you know a lot of times them crappie will suspend out in that area yeah um so it's just a matter of, of drilling holes and finding fish um, and once you find them you're going to be in them well as always my friend it's great to talk to you but i think you're you're uh, definitely on the right track with getting stuff ready for spring and then it becomes a matter of because we're, we are typically most people using different rods and reels between ice fishing season and fishing uh certainly different rods and regular you know soft water fishing season so if you've got everything ready to go on a reel and a rod that's set up it makes life a whole bunch easier when you hear that ice caps coming off strawberry exactly and you can just go out and be ready to go and catch some fish all right my friend we'll talk to you next saturday i hope you get a chance to get out wet a line this week i will thanks steve thanks george ah yes i'm getting the visual again you know the sun shining and the creek and everything else uh which is a good thing because tonight's hooked on utah we're going to talk sunshine. I mean, we're going to see sunshine. We don't have to worry about uh, just imagining it. If you're tired of the cold weather and the ice and everything else, and who isn't these days, um, we're going to be talking fishing in the warmth and the humid and everything else. GW, where are we going? Listen, we are headed back to one of the most magical places I've ever been, and that is the Amazon in Brazil. Wow. And uh, we've, got, we've got seven, including myself, a total of eight people from Utah that uh, 
I wasn't one of them. Just just to let folks know, the disclaimer is I I know it's coincidence, but I was not one of them. I did try to call you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you must have, the battery must have died on my phone, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so true. Went It went to voicemail. Okay. Oh, gosh. But, you know, each year, just like everybody else out there, I like to, you know, we all like to go someplace warm and, and do something different. And uh, so, you know, a year ago, this past January, I had the opportunity to go with the same group to uh, Manaus and then float plane out to the middle of the Amazon. And we did it again because it was just so incredible. And, and I have to say, it's one of those places that I dreamed about my whole life. And then after going last year, um, it, it's just, it's just, I couldn't wait to go back. It's just an unreal place to go fishing. And what happens, you know, just the, the sheer number of crazy species you catch mm-hmm. during one day um, is mind-blowing. Because it's all the stuff you see on Discovery Channel and these movies and you know, and and all of a sudden you find yourself in 95 degrees, 95 percent humidity, um, in literally in the middle of nowhere, doing it. It's just incredible. Now I have to ask you. I mean, I know you you caught the peacock bass, which just looks like I mean that that would be so much fun. You just tear your arms off. But I got to ask you, do you and have you ever caught arapaima down there? So. We fished for arapaima every day at the end of the day. We'd go into these lacoons, and these these big arapaima would be surfacing and gulping air. And we're talking six, and, seven feet long. These things are yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, two to two to 300-pound arapaima. And we never caught one. Um, one of the, the groups just before us caught a monster arapaima. But the guides were like, oh, yeah, it's easy. We'll go catch one at the end of the day. <laughs> and what's crazy is we would see them surface, you know, and gulp the air and go back down. And we're throwing these big feather jigs at them and just kind of jigging it along the bottom in about four feet of water. And, you know, we never got any. But we did get big arowana. We caught black piranha that weighed up to five pounds. Now imagine this, a five-pound black piranha. Takes a big chunk. Takes a big chunk oh, out of you. <laughs> they look like, their teeth look like a small shark. Yeah. And, and, and I'll tell you guys a really quick story. We, we hooked a really nice peacock bass, and it kind of got tangled up on this tree branch, so it's half out of the water. Well, it was just splashing a little bit, and we went over, and the guide reached over with a stick and pushed on the line, and it popped off the branch, and then... Uh, the guy that was with me reels it in, and as it comes over, something's wrong with the fish. We lift it out, and half of this 12-pound um, peacock bass is gone. And it's not tattered or ripped up. It looks like somebody has taken a big melon ball scooper and just taken out <laughs> surgical clean chunks. And the guy told us in Portuguese that was the black piranha. And we didn't even see the fish struggle. It was just like half the fish was gone. So you didn't swim so, is what you're telling us. You did a lot of things on this trip, but swimming was not one of them. Swimming is off the menu when we are in areas with the black piranha. <laughs> they, so, we, you know, those fish, I've got, you know, video of these giant black piranha. And then the vampire fish, which, you know, are a big, long silver. They look like a salmon, only they have teeth that, on their bottom jaw that are anywhere from, you know, one inch to two inches long that kind of go up through the roof of their mouth. And then jack sharp needle teeth all through their mouth. Crazy, Steve. I mean, that's if you're looking for what I would call the ultimate fishing adventure, you can go to Alaska, you can go to British Columbia, or you can go to Brazil. And, and you're going to have a trip where you, every day you're targeting peacock bass, but the bycatch of 
of arowana, of, you know, paku, piranha, trieta, all these other toothy fish. We caught oscars, the kind of oscar that you catch in, you see in the fish aquarium store. They were like two-pound Oscar, giant. <laughs> uh, so it's, you know, tonight's episode one, and you're going to see some fun stuff, kind of focusing on peacock and some arowana. And then as we go through the spring, we'll air a couple more that will show some of these other crazy toothy fish. But I'm telling you, if, you've, if you're thinking about, okay, we want to plan a, a pretty epic trip, um, you need to consider a trip to the Amazon uh, and fishing out there. It's just, it's, it's hard to even put it into words. Or if your phone doesn't ring uh, when your buddy goes, then you can just check it out tonight, right, and see what That's you missed. That's right, dude. <laughs> just check it out. I called you. It went to voicemail. You, you've got to quit uh, screening my call. I'm sure. I'm sure. Hey, thanks, buddy. We will check it out tonight, 11.05, right after Talking Sports on KUTV Channel 2. Uh, looking forward to it. So part one is tonight. I, am I right in assuming that next week we'll have part two? We'll probably do it in a couple of weeks. Okay. Part, next week, we've got a really fun local show for you. So, okay. Steve, don't screen my calls. Um, I'll have to quit doing that. All right, my friend. Hey, I'll talk to you next week. Okay, buddy? <laughs> All right. All right. Be good, you guys. See and, you later. That's Gary Winterton, Mr. Hooked on Utah, and he'll be taking us to, uh, vicariously, taking us to Brazil tonight, 11.05, right after Talking Sports on KUTV Channel 2. All right, we got one more segment coming up. When we do come back, we'll talk about bears in the state of Utah. You know, we talked about them. Uh, yeah, because the guys who we're talking about next will, they do get around around the state of Utah, checking out bears in their dens this time of year. That's all ahead. Stick around. Final segment of the show on this Saturday morning. Welcome back, everybody, to Inside the Outdoors. Nice to have you aboard, and uh, hope you've enjoyed the hour so far. And as we talked about earlier, um, the the bear denning story is one that, uh, first of all, you, you better be in shape because uh, you're going to have to hike some altitude. You're going to have to scramble through some uh, some snow, and then when you get there, the fun just begins because now you're right there, literally in the den of a uh, hibernating, hopefully hibernating black bear in the state of Utah to figure out what's going on with the population, how many cubs are there, um, what shape mama's in, and what shape the cubs are in, and all a whole bunch of stuff, that uh, questions that biologists would like to know the answers to, and the only way to do it is to really go in after them and find out. And Darren DuBlois, who is the Big Game Mammals coordinator, is uh, in charge of that, and he is on the phone with us this morning. So, uh, Darren, thanks for joining us. Um, I I hope I didn't exaggerate it, but I don't think I did. You guys, <laughs> you you guys are busy doing this, and you're also it is something that uh, it's not for the faint of heart. Yeah, it can. You didn't mention digging snowmobiles out. <laughs> now that's true, <laughs> <laughs> and that's just sometimes for the, that's the worst. <laughs> well, and that's just the area you can get the snowmobiles too, right? Because right. after that, yep, you've, you've got to get off them and go. Yeah, I know it's. Yeah, it, it is a lot of work. Yeah, obviously, it's a lot of fun. I'm sure for you too, but it's one heck of a lot of work. 
It is. Yeah, it can be. You got to be in shape. That's for sure. That's why I don't go anymore. <laughs> <laughs> this manage, management rather than field ops, right? That's right. Yeah, it's like a desk now. <laughs> so let, let's see. Yeah, you don't have to dig the desk out. It doesn't take quite so long to dig the That's desk right, out. Yeah. Let, let's talk about the, what you learned, though, from, from doing this. And really, I assume it is the only way that you're going to get this type of data, correct? Right. So bears are, you know, they're relatively slow reproducing. They'll have, you know, they might have a couple of cubs, but they don't, they don't have them every year. They're not like, you know, a mountain lion or, or, or deer that, that fairly regularly reproduce. Sometimes things like drought or, or just heavy winter conditions can, uh, can cause them not to, you know, they can, they can get pregnant or they can have their egg fertilized and then it won't implant if, if conditions are bad. And so, um, this is a way we can look to see if we get these birth pulses. So when conditions are good, we, we expect to see cubs in the den. And uh, the other thing we can get is generally the first year after cubs are born, they'll den again with with the sow. And so um, we can look and see what kind of survival uh, cubs are, are having on the ground. So, you know, if they're both there, she had twins the year before, and they're both there with her in the den, then, then survival's probably pretty good, and if she doesn't have them, she's probably lost them somewhere along the way. You, you talk about conditions being good. What makes for good conditions? How is that defined? Well, bears are like us. You know, they can eat pretty much everything, um, but, you know, they do get, especially some of our biggest bear populations are actually in the southeastern part of the state in the LaSalle and San Juan areas, and, and drought can really affect them. I mean, they just don't have the food resources that, that they need to put on a lot of weight. And, and in the, under those conditions, they'll reabsorb those fertilized eggs and just won't have cubs uh, sometimes. And so um, those are the sorts of things we want to see if they've had cubs. And if they haven't, then that would that would enter, enter to, uh, to our recommendations for, for permits. Is it uh, I mean, you and I visited a couple of months ago on this show, and we talked about, about the bare human encounters and that we've been having. Is mm-hmm. that... Does that signify that things have been pretty good? I mean, we've had water. Um, is it is that kind of a precursor? Do you expect to see good reproduction this year, or is it too early yeah. to tell? That that'd be my expectation. It's still you know they're they're just starting to head out right now mm-hmm. to look, but um, but the deer look pretty good this year. So uh, you know that we had a really hard year last year, drought followed by heavy winter. Um, and, and this year, things are looking better for other other critters that we're looking at over the winter. So we've had a relatively mild winter. And, of course, bears hibernate through, but um, fall was good. We got good moisture. So we expect to see some reproduction this year. So let's talk about what occurs. How, how you guys, I mean, obviously snowmobiles, you talked about that. So mm-hmm. you'll, you'll pull to an offload location. First of all, how do you determine where you're going to look? How do you find how do you well, find a bear's den if you're a biologist? <laughs> <laughs> We've got some pretty good technology these days with GPS um, collars, and so we'll put some effort during the summer when bears are up moving around into capturing and collaring uh, female black bears, and so that that's generally how we how we locate them. So those collars um, they'll give us a location about every two hours throughout the summer, and when they enter the den, they they don't see the satellite anymore and we'll lose them. And that's how we, we get a general idea where the den is based on where those signals stop. Um, in addition to the, the GPS, like, you know, the handheld kind of thing, we also, it also has a radio sit pulse that, that comes out. And so we'll go to the location where the, 
where they were last heard seen on the on the GPS and listen for that caller signal and then try to narrow it down. We just have a, a directional antenna that if you point it at the at the caller it gets louder and if you point away from it it gets softer and you can kinda home in on it that way. And sometimes it works great and other times <laughs> it can be tough. So, so it's kinda poking it kinda depends home. on where they are. Yeah, I mean I guess there, and this is obviously during the summer months, right, that you're trying to locate dens. Do dens change? How frequently does a den they, a bear den change? change? They do change they tend to change every year. Um, but they will sometimes reuse dens, um, and sometimes the cubs will reuse dens, the dens they were born in. Um, we actually have a biologist this year who <laughs> who knew where a den site was, and just on the off chance that, that there might be a bear in it, he hiked in and poked his ski pole in there and got a bit of a reaction. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> they, they, when they hibernate, they aren't they aren't totally asleep. They'll they're kind of lethargic and they'll they'll uh they'll react to stimulus and so he he left and he plans on going back and seeing if he can collar that bear this year so but they do they do occasionally reuse them um most of the time they'll they'll find something new every year how uh i i guess you look at the populations from from what you've seen in the summer in a good year how many new cubs would would the bear population in the state of utah have that's a that's a tough one. I, I could tell you for you know we probably have at a minimum you know two thousand ish adult. The reason I'm hesitant is because we don't typically count bears. They're 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 hard to count. They're it's not something you can readily see on the landscape, and so we use other things to try to determine what their population trends are, including our harvest information. But um, but, you know, at a minimum, we probably have somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,500 to 2,000 female black bears of various ages um, from two years old and older. And they'll, you know, in a good year, maybe half of those will have, have a couple of cubs. So they're replacing themselves every couple of years. Um, but, again, we can have these sort of these these lags where, where they don't reproduce. Some, some will usually every year, but, but you might get some widespread lack of cubs based on you know bad conditions late loss of, of of food in the fall that kind of thing in a den situation you typically have a sow and cubs what happens to the boars where where do they i mean they obviously must den separately correct yeah yeah they'll den separately and and we don't uh, we don't call our boars we're, we're just interested in that reproductive uh, information and uh-huh. so um, we we don't den boars, but we'll we'll go in the and the sows. You know, they have may have a boar cub that's a year and a half old from you know a cub from the year before. Yeah, but that's typically the only time you can run across a, a boar in a den um, that we're at least you know intending to to go and check. Um, but that that does happen, and, and usually uh, the first year the cubs will be awake. They don't hibernate with mom mom will hibernate but they'll continue to nurse and hang out in the den so when you get there mom will be lethargic and you can you can tranquilize her and just make sure she's not going to wake up and then uh the cubs you can just handle they're they're young enough that uh they don't put up much of a fight so we can weigh them and measure them and uh see what sex they are and, and get that kind of information without using any kind of 
tranquilizers for them. When when the and as far as boars are concerned, do they 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 den individually, or do you find do they den together, or? They'll, usually individually, yeah. Most ninety nine point nine percent of the time. Yeah. The only time I could think you might find a couple of boars in a den would be a couple of uh, young siblings. Maybe they got, you know, mom when she gets ready to have cubs will will kick those those you know almost two year old cubs off. Right. And occasionally you'll get a couple of them uh, sharing an apartment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bachelor pad. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. But but typically they're they're alone. Yeah. Once they're past that. You talk about uh, about cubs may go back to the den in which they were they were born. Um, that's I assume when they're very young and obviously not reproductive age. How long does it take a bear to be of reproductive age? Um, typically, I'm just I'm trying to think of the literature. Five comes to mind. You know they're pretty regularly reproducing, and so again that's why they're relatively old when they start compared yeah. to other. Uh, species that we look at and so you know that that uh, that reproduction is critical to know about you need to know what's going on because they can they don't just take off the population doesn't just soar in a short amount of time so it's it's pretty uh, i assume then it's it's quite easy as far as for, for maintenance you know kind of where the population is going to be there aren't peaks and valleys and big spikes in it uh how, yeah. what's the lifespan of of the bear then and, and how long will they uh reproduce I, th- I think on average um i want to say 15 to 18 but we've had some really old females too in some of our studies up, up into their 30s wow. and if my memory serves i think i think uh byu had had a female bear in her 30s on the tablet puts that was still having cubs. Wow, that's um, that's so obviously a rarity. Yeah, that's that's the tail end of the of the bell curve for sure. But they they certainly are capable and and can live to be long, live to be quite old. So how long does your how long does your uh, uh, survey take in terms of how long will you be doing this? Um, we'll, we try to get out and get everything done um, by early March. Just. You know, especially this year where we've got a fairly mild winter, bears will bears will kind of start poking their heads out, and if there's things to eat, they'll stay out. Um, but you know, I've I've been to dens in March where the sow's sitting out in front, awake, totally awake. Oh, really? And uh, and she'll you know go back in the den, and you can that gets a little bit more sketchy. You can still tranquilize and handle it, but um, it's easier to <laughs> groggy. <laughs> yeah, you don't like to don't like to be welcomed at the doorstep. I would imagine. No. <laughs> it's not, it's like, yeah, it's standing at the mouth of the funnel and, and hoping the bear doesn't come out. So, so we, yeah, we try to have everything wrapped up before that that happens. And, and how many dens do you think you'll actually get into over the course of this this survey? We've got we, we've got about thirty bears on the air right now. We probably won't, you know, if, if we know they had cups. Uh, Yearling cut. Well, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll probably try to hit most of them. There, there are a few that um, you know. If they're too far, you, sometimes these these bear. You talk about a workout. Sometimes the workout just isn't possible, just because of where they've been. Yeah. So, uh, so we'll we'll probably try to get you know about twenty of those, 
um, before before we're all done. Will they be mostly? I, I mean, I assume you have to get around and spread it out on the state because that's where the bear population is. It's diverse. But how will you how will you figure out? You mentioned the southern part of the state, which I think a lot of people don't consider bear country. Um, but where are they located? We know the area around uh, Timpanogos, you know, because typically we have summer bear human encounters there. Mm-hmm. So we know that yeah. that's bear country as well. But how are they distributed around the state? We, we've got them a little bit everywhere. So, uh, you know, our population just generally is, like you said, um, you know, Utah County, Mountains South, and, and then, you know, over into the Book Cliffs on the Tavlefoots and and, and to southeastern Utah and the LaSalle's, and some of our biggest populations are, are actually on the book list and, and the LaSalle's. Um, but we've got callers across um, all those areas. We even have one up near Camas. We don't have quite as many bears in the northern part of the state, and they're, they're hard to come by. Um, but but uh, we do have at least one caller up there, and we're trying to get, get some more out. So we spread them out. Yeah, and, and I assume, I mean, Cache County, you obviously old, the old Ephraim legend and everything else, used yeah. to have a lot of bears in northern Utah. Is the change in population there, uh, the lack of, of bears, is that a function of population or is that a function of changing ecosystem, perhaps? I, I think a little bit of changing resources. Um, that population fluctuates. You know, we've got more bears. I used to be the biologist for the cache, and mm-hmm. we have have more bears now than we did when I started. You know, about a decade ago on the cache, but we're still talking about you know a low population, probably less than than ten. Really, that's small. Um, yeah, and and they look. It seems like they sort of came in from the south. Um, you know, in the early two thousands, mid two thousands. Um, I talking to people who've been around, you know, they've had more bears up there in the past, so it seems to kind of go up and down. The only thing I can think of that might might be driving that is that you just don't have the oak brush in that part of the state that you do once you get to Ogden and South. You get yeah. those acorns and that, so that food resource isn't there. But the bears that are living there seem to be doing doing fine. They don't generally get into trouble. They're not showing up in campgrounds very often, once in a while. I, I know most... We had one steal a guy's elk one year. That, oh, really? <laughs> that, yeah. That's, one, on that's a fight you're not probably going to win, that's right? right. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he, he left it hanging and to pack some of it out when he got back. A, a bear had moved in and yeah, well, just to let you know where the real pecking order is in in the wild. Uh, you know, I, most of our, I guess, all of our bears, at least officially in the state, are black bears. Um, the grizzly yeah. bear is not supposedly not in the state of Utah. I'm a little surprised with the north, though, that we wouldn't get grizzlies that don't really know the difference between the border of Idaho, Wyoming, and, and Utah. We don't get yeah. some bears crossing that border. There is that something that. I mean, is it true, I guess, that we don't have, officially, we don't have grizzly in this state? Not, yeah, not that I, I've seen any credible evidence for. Of course, Old Ephraim was a grizzly bear, mm-hmm. so yeah. it's definitely it's bear habitat. And and, uh, and and again, you know, those bears to the north are, are, are moving southward all the time. But as far as, as, far as we've been able to t- determine, and I'm pretty sure it's true, we, don't, we haven't seen any grizzlies return to the state yet. 
Well, I'll tell you, I think we're all fascinated by bears. You guys have a great uh, a great job that a lot of us envy. Maybe not so much when we're digging out snowmobiles and, and trying to crawl, <laughs> crawl into dens, but uh, for the for the idea, at least, of your job, it, it sounds, I mean, it's one of those dream uh, assignments, I would think, in the DWR. You've got a lot of guys, I'm sure, that are extremely happy about that, but um, it seems to me there's an awful lot that we still don't know about bears, despite the fact that, that we've uh, we've put in all this time and effort and money and everything else. And we continue to learn more and more about them. They're an apex predator, obviously, um, and we've displaced a lot of them. But it's nice to know we have that many in the state of Utah. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're a cool species. Well, Darren, hey, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, good luck this coming month, because I guess that's when that's when it's really going to ratchet up, and uh, and and you'll be at full speed in terms of checking on dens. How many guys, How many folks do you have uh, working on the bear project when it comes to we, denning? We've got you know five regions and and four to five biologists in each region, and they're they're all working hard. And you said it. This is one of those assignments that it's easy to find volunteers for. <laughs> so uh, usually there's not enough snowmobiles for the people who want to go. Yeah, I... So no shortage of help. <laughs> I, I hear you there. It's the guys digging them out. There's a shortage of when it gets that. Right, yeah. that. So, <laughs> Darren, hey, thanks yep. for joining us this morning. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and we'll uh, be speaking to you again soon. Sure thing. Thanks. All right. Boy, I tell you, folks, I, I don't know about you, but I learned a heck of a lot uh, about uh, bears in that segment with Darren. And I hope you've enjoyed the show. That, that's going to do it for us. We are just about out of time. It's amazing how quickly the hour goes. Again, if you want to check on the snow geese, uh, the watching, it is today. Gunnison Bend Reservoir, just west of Delta. This morning between 9 and 1030, they should be heading in and out of the, the reservoir to the fields and back again. Probably this afternoon is the easiest way to go. And obviously the easiest for time uh, but it is kind of a fun thing to take the kids and for the adults really kids of any age so I want to thank Darren I want to thank George I want to thank uh, Gary for joining us as always and most importantly thank you for joining us again on this Saturday morning we'll be back again next week between 8 and 9 right here on 97.5 The Zone until then as always my friends have a great week and you have been warned yeah.